0: Okay, look, peeps, by the way, I said that to one of my T's, and her answer was, don't call me that, I'm not a small marshmallow bird. Ah, uh, children. But seriously, this is It's All Relative, the podcast that looks at crime and the family, except today, and last week, and hey, maybe next week as well, because this is the second episode about the death of Danny Hansford on May 1st, or 2nd, 1991, in Savannah, Georgia. I'll explain the date shortly. If that topic sounds wrong, it's probably because you missed last week's episode or because you downloaded this by accident. But let it be a happy accident, folks. Now that you are here, stick around. Well, no, actually go back to last week, listen to that episode and then come back to this one. Pause here and the story will pick up right where you left off after you've heard the beginning of the tale. The Go-Go's will set the mood. Deborah Lynn Blevins was tending bar and living in a trailer with a roommate in 1980. Debbie's roommate was dating George Hill, a good friend, maybe best friend, to Danny Hansford. And for a best friend, we hear very little about George Hill. It is this connection which brings Danny and Debbie together. To Debbie, Danny was someone to hang around with. Every source but Debbie herself puts Debbie as Danny's girlfriend. Debbie actually says she wasn't all that serious about him, which, let's face it, was probably wise. Danny, she said, was fun and sweet, as long as he wasn't drinking. When he was drinking, he was mean. Danny also asked her to marry him on more than one occasion, and Debbie kept saying no, and she would eventually get annoyed by his continued repetition. Jim Williams had not just renovated Mercer House, he decided to live there, and Danny would take George and Debbie there to play games and hang out. Debbie said that the only time Danny would be overtly libidinous towards her was when they were at Mercer House. She also said that she had no idea Danny and Williams were having sex, that there was nothing in their demeanor that even made her suspicious. In the previous episode, I said that it was like Danny was pathologically driven to hurt the ones who loved him. This seems like a case in point. Bringing Debbie to Mercer House and taking those times to be obviously trying to come on to her, were his way of trying to get at Jim. Debbie having no idea what was going on is actually completely believable. Just calm down and give me a minute. Hey, one of you is still mumbling, no one is that gullible. And you know who you are. There is less information about Debbie than there is about Danny. But I, myself, come from a culture where people were, and many still are, rather naïve. So it's not much of a stretch to believe it of Debbie, at least for me. Additionally, people who live in a society in which there are markedly different codes for how you act in public versus how you act in private tend to be very good at compartmentalizing their actions and reactions. Like, super good. I'm pretty sure Jim had mastered that art. So, yep, I totally think that is plausible. And lest you forget, Danny Hansford had been in and out of the judicial system. He had been discharged from the Air Force for conduct unbecoming. He'd been in and out of the proverbial home for boys. And he'd been in the mental ward a few times as well. Danny had caught the eye of Savannah's most prominent and shady antique and historic home restorers, Jim Williams. Jim Williams also curried favor in Savannah's high society as a pimp for pederasts. In August of 1980, Danny announced to Jim that he'd taken 49 tablets of Jim's Limbitrol. Okay, wait. Y'all gonna just throw that in the mix and not talk about it? Yup. Three of the four major accounts of Danny's death gonna just throw it out there like that's not something that matters. The fourth source, that would be Lawyer Games by Depp Kirkland, we will talk about in a bit. Why was Jim taking Limbitrol? Limbitrol is a combo tricyclic and benzo that can help depression and anxiety. I was actually on the tricyclic in Limbitrol for pain. It made me feel like I was walking through quicksand and I would faint when I stood up. It was scary. Point being, the Limbitrol is some serious medication that no one seems to be considering in the makeup of Jim's state of mind. But back to the suicide attempt. Danny takes this massive dose of Limbitrol, but Jim thinks he's lying to get attention. Danny passes out, and Jim realizes it's for reals. Jim calls his physician, who says, Call an ambulance! Put a pin in that, by the way. This trend of Jim not calling the official channels first will come up again. Jim must have also called Emily Bannister, Danny's mother, because both she and Jim meet the ambulance at the hospital this point, Danny is in a coma and his stomach gets pumped. Both Jim and Emily tell the doctors about Danny's violent nature, his drug and alcohol use, and that there was another suicide attempt which occurred shortly after Danny moved to Mercer House. Okay, Kirkland again plays devil's advocate when discussing the Limbitrol event. Quote, continuing the portrait of Hansford as drunk and disturbed, Williams gave a play-by-play of a purported 1980 Hansford suicide attempt. The reason for use of the term purported here is that Williams claimed Hansford swallowed a bottle of pills and immediately told Williams what he had done. Most people trying to commit suicide don't rush to tell somebody that they just swallowed the pills that are supposed to do the job, not if they mean it. Regardless, this event will be called a suicide attempt. End quote. Um, Depp? Mr. Kirkland, sir? Most people who try to commit suicide don't actually want to die. It's very often just a cry for help or even the result of just not knowing what else to do. So yeah, not if they mean it, Depp Kirkland, sir. Continuing his quote, After Danny's stomach was pumped at Memorial Medical Center, he was placed in Clark Pavilion, the cycling. He woke up and went nuts. Williams claimed that Danny tore up Clark Pavilion and beat up three orderlies. No witness from these facilities who testified would ever recall any such thing, end quote. Kirkland's assumption is that Williams is lying. I'm pretty sure that Jim Williams didn't have a monopoly on lies. He could very easily be regurgitating what Danny, Emily, or anyone from the hospital staff told him. My mother exaggerated all the time, and I'm not exaggerating that. If you leave a light on for the first time ever, she would accuse you of always leaving the light on. And that was a really benign example. As for the hospital staff not remembering, just because Williams thought it happened doesn't mean that it actually happened. Also, hospitals have a funny way of covering their arses, particularly every circumstance. Maybe there was an upcoming audit and they couldn't afford to have the ward look bad. But back to quoting Kirkland. Why did the defense bring up this suicide event? To show that Williams saved Danny's life in 1980. Williams' alternative would have been to call no one and wait for Danny to die or do whatever a massive dose of Limbatrol might make him do. But the clear suggestion was that if Williams called EMS in 1980, he couldn't have erupted in anger and shot Danny in 1981. Continuing with this theme, Williams described Danny's 1979 Georgia Regional Hospital admission. He described it slightly differently than he had in Williams's first trial. He told me he had been there several times. He'd get in there for various reasons. Danny went to Georgia Regional twice for a total of four days, in 1975 at age 15 and in 1979 after a drunken beating by his landlord. Again, Williams was unable to tell the simple truth. End quote. No depth again. Jim Williams did not have a monopoly on lies. Maybe that is what Danny told him and he didn't know any different. Maybe Danny was talking about hospitals in general. Maybe Danny said that about something else and Williams misunderstood or misremembered. Now, the next Kirkland quote is actually pretty interesting. Quote, Danny swallowed pills on August of 1980. He told Williams he was taken to Memorial Medical Center where his stomach was pumped. Within this story was a glaring fallacy by Williams that would never be resolved. Williams claimed that Danny overdosed on Limbitrol that Dr. DeHaven had prescribed to Williams. Limbitrol is a prescription medication for anxiety and depression, not hypoglycemia. And Williams wasn't being treated by Dr. DeHaven in August of 1980. He didn't see Dr. DeHaven for the first time until eight months later. Where did the Limbitrol come from? Dr. DeHaven confirmed again he had never advised Williams to have a constant companion and he had not prescribed Limbitrol for Williams, end quote. Pause per remuneration. My thought is this. Either the Limbitrol was for Jim, because it did seem that he was fighting unacknowledged or undiagnosed depression, or the Limbitrol was for Danny because he was, well, a bit touched in the head. I can see the Limbitrol incident happening the way Jim claims, but I can also see Danny going, you think I need to take these pills? Well, I'll show you and then taking them all. Kirkland also makes a big deal about the amount of pills. Quote, did Williams ever tell the whole truth about anything? No physician prescribes exactly 49 pills. Did suicidal Hansford stop and count them? End quote. Jesus Christ, Depp, like the only way pills ever exist are in the whole prescription quantity. It's either all or none. Does no one ever take like, say one pill? Leaving a bunch more in the package or the bottle? Who cares that there was an odd number of 49? This is such a petty thing to harp on. Where did the the Limitrol come from? That's a little bit more important. My guess, they got it illicitly. Either Jim had one of his contacts get them, or Danny got them from one of his. It's not that hard to answer, people. Remember, Danny spent his short life on drugs. Even Dr. DeHaven could have gotten the pills for Jim and then be lying on the stand. I'm not saying he is lying, but if he had, he could be struck off for subscription vending. DeHaven's not going to say, Er, um, yeah, I prescribed these in open court. Sheesh. Okay, now we are coming up on the events leading to Danny's death. And as an important aside, the police station is literally the other side of the town square. So, like, two to three minutes away. April 3rd, 1981, sometime prior to a quarter to four in the morning, Jim and Danny got into a fight and Jim called the police. Danny was arrested for criminal damage. There are a few versions of what happened. Jim says Danny picked a fight and then appeared with a gun and tried to shoot Jim. Danny supposedly said something like, God damn it, what will it take for you to kill me? When the cops arrive, Danny is in bed and claiming to not know what they are there for. Jim says that, as soon as Danny and the police were called, he ran up to his room and pretends to be asleep. Kirkland says, quote, One of the officers, Anderson, testified that he and the others answered the April call at 3.45 a.m. Williams told them Hansford was upstairs, armed, and that they probably wouldn't take him alive. They crept up the stairs, found Hansford lying across a bed, and roused him. Williams showed them a hole in the carpet where a bullet fired by Danny was supposed to have gone through the carpet and into the floor. The officers couldn't find a bullet. Let's pause our citation there. Danny wasn't actually in bed. It sounds like he passed out. Williams said that Danny seemed intoxicated. Knowing the way Danny operated, he was probably on drugs as well. He may very well have crashed coming down from a high and just passed out. And then there is the couldn't find a bullet statement. Come on, Kirkland. You, a native Savannan, have no experience with guns. Bullets have an uncanny way of not going in a predictable direction. Particularly when they are fired by someone in a crazed state. How hard did they actually look? Also, did they check the gun had been shot recently? Four main sources and I still can't tell, but that would be more telling than whether or not they found a bullet at all. Back to Kirkland. I'm quoting again. Williams wanted Danny removed from the house, but Corporal Anderson told him they couldn't do that on a domestic dispute. So, Williams set the value of his damaged property just above the felony threshold for criminal damage to property and Danny was arrested, end quote. Excuse me, what? The police can't remove a hostile person from a residence if that person is in some kind of a domestic relationship with the injured party. What the fuck are you saying, Kirkland? And then he asks, quote, If Danny had shot at Williams two or three times in April, why had Hansford only been charged with criminal damage to property and reckless conduct? End quote. Is this man even paying attention to what he has written in his own book? He's already answered his own question. He said that the cops couldn't remove Danny on a domestic charge. Remember writing that? Yes? No? Other than the inanity of this whole circular problem presented by Mr. Kirkland, the bit of information that actually makes me inclined to believe Jim Williams' account was the fact that he only had the police charge Danny with $600 in damage. It is really difficult to determine value for antiques at any given period in the past, but the antiques that Jim had in his home were surely valued in the thousands, even in 1981. Quote from Bardsley, Apparently, it wasn't the response Danny wanted, so he smashed a new marble top table, threw a bronze lamp against the wall, and smashed some Chinese porcelain and ivory figures. Then he took a cut-glass water pitcher and slammed it on the floor. The pitcher blew up like a grenade, and shards of glass stuck in Danny's arms. End quote. To only advocate for $600 seems to be very, very generous, based on that accounting of what Danny broke. Kirkland also claims that, quote, Williams set the damages at $600, just enough to cross the $500 misdemeanor felony damage cutoff, end quote. Honestly, if I were going to a set amount just enough to cross a dollar amount threshold, I would literally be using just enough. For the 500 amount, I would ask for like 501 or thereabouts, not a whole 20% more. Kirkland also tries to discredit this event by questioning the shooting, like the actual shooting. Quote, If Danny had shot at Williams two or three times in April trying to kill him, why was Williams still alive? End quote. Um, because Danny wasn't actually trying to kill Williams? Or because Danny was off his head and couldn't aim? Because Danny was trying to get Williams to shoot back and kill him? Jesus, he shot into the bedroom floor. He shot the trees outside. Sounds like Danny wasn't really aiming for Jim. For those who question Danny's death wish, I quote from Bardsley, Debbie, Danny's girlfriend, believed he had a death wish. We'd drive by a cemetery and he would say, when I die, I'm going to have a headstone that's gigantic. He would always talk about death. I thought it was awfully strange for someone his age to be talking about gravestones. He said Jim would pay for his gravestone. I don't know why he said that. I told him, you don't need to be talking about dying as young as you are, End quote. The next day, Jim dropped the charges and brought Danny home to Mercer House. Oddly, I cannot find any mention of this in Kirkland's book, and I would think that it would be a prime opportunity for Kirkland to rip into William's story. Instead, there is silence. Jim dropping the charges also adds credibility to Williams' story, at least for me. This is exactly what someone in a fucked-up relationship would do. In a subsequent trial, remember, Williams was tried four times, a neighbor testified that she had seen Danny shoot off a gun into the trees outside Mercer House on that April night. But it was dark at three something in the morning, and she wasn't sure at the time what she had actually seen. According to Bardsley, quote, were you afraid? Siler asked her, having seen the incident. She answered, Well, I was more concerned living right there on Bull Street. There's a lot of things that go on in Forsyth Park, you know. It's not unusual to hear something at night. I collected my thoughts for a minute, and I thought about calling the police. But I looked out the window and by then there was a police car there. I was exhausted. I went to bed. End quote. Bardsley's account is relatively the same as Barron's, and Kirkland tries to poke some holes in the neighbor's testimony, but mostly leaves it alone. He does comment on how the neighbor is newly discovered, and in the last chapter of the book, he makes a general comment about rumors that witnesses were paid off by the defense. So he definitely hints at not believing her testimony. Okay, next in Danny's story. Now, Jim has developed hypoglycemia, supposedly. Not sure when that was diagnosed, but the side effects from Limbitrol are similar, and Jim didn't tell anyone he was on the Limbitrol, presuming it was not for Danny. This may have been the problem. Mental disorder stigma, people, it's a thing. Jim has a trip to Europe coming up. He often goes on buying trips, but he has recently passed out, supposedly from his hypoglycemia, and he also tends to take large quantities of cash with him on these trips. For both of these reasons, Jim says he wants someone to go with him. BT-dubs, long, long ago, if you wanted to travel, you had to worry quite a bit about money. I don't mean just having enough to pay for the trip. Not everyone had a credit card. You had to qualify, and it was a lot harder to do that in the past. Plus, credit cards had, and still have, Those huge interest rates and people were less inclined to go that route when paying for anything. Cards didn't have all the deals they do now either. No points, people. Oh, and many American credit cards were not valid outside the U.S. Believe it or not, that's how Visa got to be so prevalent. Their tagline became everywhere you want to be because it was actually valid outside of the U.S. If you were traveling internationally, you had to worry about foreign money. Changing money, for which there was a fee, and just the general safety of carrying large quantities of cash in any denomination. Keep in mind, the euro did not exist. Every country in Europe had a different currency. Countries or currencies would collapse, and people had to rush to use their money before the deadline when that money would be useless. So, Jim traveling with a bunch of cash is really not all that strange. I do wonder why he wouldn't carry traveler's checks. Traveler's checks were changed for cash at the bank, used like cash, and were guaranteed against theft or loss. When cash was stolen, it's gone. When traveler's checks are stolen, the bank gives you your money back. There was, however, a decent underground for American currency because the dollar was strong and maintained a fairly steady value. People would accept dollars as payment, or bribes, and then turn that U.S. dollar into another currency when the exchange rate was good. When the euro took off, it was worth more than the U.S. dollar, and that was the first time in a very long time that people would actually prefer their cash in a form other than the dollar. Now back to the main story. Jim is going to Europe, and he's planning on taking Danny. From where we sit in an armchair, and with hindsight, this is a very obviously bad idea. At some point, Jim also realizes this is a bad idea. Danny is planning on taking his drugs with him, and Jim completely disapproves. Okay, gotta use my way back machine again. Before 9-11, anybody and their brother could get into the airport. You could just walk right in, see your friend or relative off at the gate. People would park and go in to the baggage claim to pick people up. I know, right? In this shockingly lax time of airport chaos, it was much easier to bring whatever you wanted on an airplane, formula in a baby bottle, tweezers, Swiss Army knives, and in Danny's case, illicit drugs. When my daughter was about two, I actually drove right into the airport car park and we spent the afternoon just watching the planes land and take off, and I didn't even have a boarding pass. So Jim's concern at Danny bringing drugs along probably had very little to do with the illegal nature of the contraband or even the potential European customs violation. Getting caught does equal bad. But depending on your port of call, you didn't always get stopped by customs. Jim had a certain image to maintain and drugs did not fit into that image. Danny would also not fit that image if he was strung out at any point in the trip. So Jim had arranged for another friend one Joe Goodman to go along with him, Bardsley says it was Danny who decided he didn't want to follow Jim's rules for the trip and opted not to go. Meanwhile, Debbie, the girlfriend, has refused to speak with Danny for a week because of his actions on April third. Danny had promised her he would give her a gold necklace and to try to coax her to talk to him again. Danny manipulated Jim into getting said necklace. Jim owned a gold chain, and Danny told Jim he wanted one like it for himself. Really, it was for Debbie. Debbie believed that Danny had bought it himself with his own money. And the end of April, Debbie wore the necklace on her visit to Mercer House. Jim showed no sign that he even recognized the necklace. However, George Hill, that so-called best friend of Danny's, gave a statement to prosecutors that Jim had given the necklace to Danny with the condition that he would break up with Debbie. The prosecution's theory is that Danny flaunting the necklace was an instigating factor in the shooting. Jim's buying trip was set for May 3rd. Jim's account of that night is as follows. At 530 or 6 p.m. on the night of May 1st, 1981, Danny came by Mercer House. He was grumbling about his life. The two went to a drive-in. The first movie started at 10.30 and they sat through Dawn of the Dead, leaving the other two movies, Walk of the Dead and Curse of the Living Dead, to play without them. Hopping in my way back once more, there used to be these places that looked like a parking lot, but each space had a pole next to it and there was a giant screen at the end of the lot. You would drive your car up to the pole and facing the screen. On the pole would be a speaker which was attached to the pole by a long cord. You would pull the speaker into your car through a window, and this is how you would hear the movies that were projected onto the giant screen. Later in time, the speaker was replaced by the theater co-opting a radio station, and you just tuned your car radio in. I say movies plural because drive-ins always showed at least a double feature, and that means two movies, guys, and sometimes a triple feature. Apparently, it was a zombie homage night at the Savannah Movie Park. On the one hand, I feel like this is a weird place for Jim to be, but on the other, we haven't met Miss Minerva yet. And when we do, you might think I am weird for thinking it is weird. Jim and Danny play games. Backgammon, Tari. After a bit, Danny starts to grumble about his life again. By this point, according to Jim, Danny had drunk one half a pint of wild turkey and was working on the other. He had also smoked eight or nine joints. From Bardsley, quote, Jim claimed that Danny talked about these three people rapidly in a very high tone of voice. All of a sudden, his personality snapped. It snapped just exactly like Doctor Jekyll, Mister Hyde's situation. He turned into a raging madman and stood up and said, "Those games, those games have caused this whole thing." Then he stomped right through the Atari set, and the thing flew to pieces. Jim said. I kept talking to Danny, but Danny wasn't talking in the same conversation with him. End quote. I mean, Jim is flat out describing a manic episode. Jim says he realized he couldn't manage Danny this time and he reaches for the phone to call the police. But Jim also realized just in time that Danny might get seriously violent if he knew Jim was going to the police. So he dials Joe Goodman instead. Goodman is the friend who was going to replace Danny on that trip to Europe. Jim talks with Goodman and hangs up the phone. When Jim called Goodman back, it would be to tell him that Danny was dead. Now look, don't hold your breath, because you will either die or seriously affect your brain cells. Either outcome means you won't be able to listen to next week's episode. Don't you want to find out what happens? Instead, take that time and write a review, or at least like and subscribe. Say hello on Patreon, Insta, and Twitter. I am including those in the show notes. Yes, I am still calling it Twitter, and I will continue to do so. Tina Turner will see you out, and I will talk at you next time on It's All Relative. It that I'm acting confused when you're close to me. place I've got calls to be. There's a name for it. There's a phrase that is. But whatever the reason you do it for me, oh, what's love got to do? It's got to do with.